X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jeff Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Wednesday, July 15th. The Ides of July, a good day to subscribe to The Local. Today, back in the day on the Ides of July in 2006, Twitter was launched and democracy was saved. Happy birthday also to Portland Trailblazer Damian Lillard. He just turned 30. Good luck in Orlando. Stay healthy. We'll start with your quick six. We'll have an in-depth look at air quality and COVID-19 with Dr. Richard Corsi from Portland State and an interview with Brooke Jackson-Glidden and Alex Frayne from Eater on their article, The Portland Restaurant World's Reckoning, Explained. First up, X-Ray. It's time for today's Quick Six Local Rundown. The e-board met and Oregon has approved a one-time relief payment to workers that are still waiting for their jobless benefits. It was approved unanimously by the Emergency Board, a.k.a. the e-board, on Tuesday. Workers who have waited months for jobless benefits may be eligible for a $500 one-time payment. The money would be an outright grant, which recipients wouldn't have to pay back. However, like most things involving individual payouts, it's not clear just who is eligible for the payments, and there's no process yet for how workers might apply. Administrators say it'll likely be several weeks before anybody gets the money. The hope is to provide some aid for workers who have suffered financially. And these payments would be administrated not by the Employment Department, but by the state's Department of Administrative Services. Oregon's going to spend $35 million on the relief program using the money from the Federal CARES Act, and that could fund payments for up to about 70,000 workers. Maybe fewer if administrative costs take up some of the budget. And that was not the biggest pot of money they applied yesterday. The e-board appropriated $62 million to create a grant fund for black businesses, nonprofit organizations, individuals, and families, the Oregon CARES Fund. The fund is going to be administered by the Contingent, a Portland-area nonprofit, and it'll disperse grants up to $3,000 for families, up to $100,000 for black-run businesses. There was a debate about whether a race-conscious program would be constitutional. That presupposes a national debate around the constitutionality and political viability of reparations generally, and the majority of the committee agreed it would be worth risking a court challenge. Other big funding priorities approved. Each of those could be their own headline. $50 million to aid cultural institutions. It's in two big buckets, and each of those are in some other buckets. That includes large payments, first of all, to several of Oregon's biggest arts organizations. The Shakespeare Festival got $4.7 million. They said they still have a ways to go before they're in a position to reopen. The Oregon Symphony and Metro also got a chunk of change. And it offered seven months' worth of operating expenses for dozens of theaters and other venues. Jim Brumberg of Mississippi Studios and Revolution Hall helped lead that effort. $30 million is appropriated to pay workers who need to quarantine due to the virus but don't have access to paid leave, workers' comp, or unemployment payments in order to do so. The fund would pay qualifying workers $120 for each day they are forced to miss work. It would only apply to people who make less than $60,000 a year or $120,000 for a household. $25.6 million is applied to stepped-up grants to small businesses and another $3.58 million in general funds for emergency water infrastructure to the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs as the tribe faces an ongoing water crisis. Your daily dose of data, 380 new COVID cases in Oregon. Seven more people have died. According to the Health Authority, Oregon's percentage of positive tests increased again last week to 5.8%. The previous week's positive test rate was 5.3%. The Oregon's positive test rate going into the pandemic so far, 3.9%. National positive test rate, 9%. Here's your reminder, Governor Brown has limited indoor gatherings, including birthday parties, to less than 10 people. And remember to mask up outdoors if you're going to be finding yourself within six feet of other people. And on Tuesday, Governor Jay Inslee of Washington extended a pause on reopening the economy to July 28th 
as cases continue to increase across that state. They've got a positive test rate of 5.9% as well. In the weeks from July 24th to July 7th, there were 111.9 new coronavirus cases per 100,000 Washington residents. That's bigger than the previous peak of disease activity back in March. When this got going, we said that one of the more likely scenarios was what I called rolling brownouts. We'd be open and then closed and then open and then closed. Remember to mare your wask. Portland Public Schools is going to rename Wilson High School. They are expediting it. The Born Southerner instituted segregation in federal government and allied with the KKK. Board members also indicated support of changing the name of Madison High School, and the school district said it would do a comprehensive review of district school names. It's not lost on me, by the way, that my given name is Jefferson. If you got a suggestion of what it ought to be, let me know. Secretary of State Bev Clarno is going to extend the deadline for redistricting measures. IP57 supporters will now have until August 17th to turn in 58,789 valid signatures, giving them an extra month and requiring about 90,000 fewer signatures. Our Oregon and Planned Parenthood have sued to block the measure. It's pending in state court. We'll stay tuned for that one. In terms of who controls the legislature in the future, who controls Congress, and therefore what policies are passed in the next decade, that is probably the most important measure that might be on the ballot. In economic news, Oregon has recovered a third of the jobs it lost early in the pandemic. Oregon's unemployment rate dropped to 11.2% in June, down from 14.3% in May. Meanwhile, Uber Eats has added a $3 customer fee on food delivery orders. The new fee, labeled the City of Portland Ordinance, began appearing on orders last week after the city council passed the new rule. and includes a 10% limit on how much food delivery apps can charge restaurants and commission during the coronavirus pandemic. Uber announced last week they bought Postmates, another third-party delivery app, for $2.65 billion in stock. Portland is currently the only city where Uber Eats is charging that $3 customer fee. To be clear, if you live in another city, it'd be weird if your order said City of Portland Ordinance. I suppose they could name it something else. Tribes are struggling to meet deadlines to spend their virus relief aid. Unlike state and local governments, tribes have no tax base and rely on tribal enterprises to generate revenue. Like gaming, like gambling. Tribes are wrestling with competing needs, restrictive laws, inadequate staffing to deal with financial windfalls on a deadline. Casino revenue has, of course, taken a hit. But Congress approved $8 billion for tribes in March under the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act. The money was supposed to go out within 30 days, but the payments to tribes were delayed. On the Navajo Nation reservation, leaders must now decide how to spend more than $714 million in federal relief money. The reservation is 27,000 square miles. It stretches across northeastern Arizona into New Mexico and Utah. Delivering drinking water, building adequate housing, getting residents online would take more money than the government made available and more time than allotted. The fastest way to spend the money would be to spend the money on things already identified, but under Treasury Department guidelines, the funds can't be spent on items already budgeted. In Oregon, Councilman Michael Langley of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Run said the pandemic and the tribal budget are inseparable. Tribes nationally are lobbying their congressional delegation to extend the spending deadline and allow for more flexibility. It has passed the House, hasn't yet been taken up in the Senate. And the good news for soccer fans, the Timbers are back. They kicked off Major League Soccer's restart tournament Monday night with a 2-1 to win over the L.A. Galaxy. Go Timbers. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. As we consider schools reopening and weather forcing us indoors, can we be together safely inside? We have air quality expert Dr. Richard Corsi, Dean of Portland State's Massey College of Engineering and Computer Science. Dr. Corsi's research focuses on human exposure and innovative control strategies related to indoor air quality. Welcome to X-Ray, Dean Corsi. Hi, Emily. How are you? 
I'm doing okay. How are you today? Fine, thank you. Good. So tell us, how has your career become focused on air quality? How do you? How did you get involved in this? Oh, great question. Uh, I used to do extensively research on outdoor air pollution until the early 1990s, mm. and I, without getting into the whole story, uh, recognizing you know, how much time Americans spend indoors. So the, the average American lives to be about 79 years old, and we spend 69 of our 79 years literally domiciled inside of buildings and 54 of those 79 years in our own homes. And so if you look at uh, where we're exposed to air pollution, even air pollution of outdoor origin, it tends to be indoors and it tends to be in our homes. So I've spent the last 25 to 30 years really focusing on indoor air quality in homes and in schools. Um, and that's, that's really it. It was a recognition of how much time we spend indoors. And at the time, and even now, how little research is spent on studying the indoor environment. Hmm. That's interesting. So as we think about reopening, as we think about gathering inside again in small groups and then larger groups, what are the best practices to control the spread of the virus as we move indoors together in groups? Uh, great question. So uh, social distancing is very important, especially indoors. Um, I've said for a long time six feet is not enough, but uh, there's a lot of details that, that are behind that statement. Um, wearing a mask is important if you're in a group. Um, it's important for you, but it's also important that other people around you are wearing a mask. Uh, while what, you know, masks, homemade masks are not perfect, they do, they do cut transmission considerably by, um, by removing larger particles that come out of people's mouths when they're infected and they're speaking or coughing. Uh, but also they, they slow the propulsion of the sort of jet of viruses that come out of your mouth and particles if you're infected. So, so that initial sort of distance of things travel isn't as great. Um, avoiding dense environments, getting in and out of grocery stores as fast as you can. Mm. Uh, I think from, uh, from a state standpoint and a city standpoint, it, to the extent that as we open back up, we can stagger work hours so we have less people in the workplace at any given time and less people in school at a given time. Uh, let, let as many people stay remote as possible. Uh, increasing the amount of outdoor air that we bring into buildings, whether it be a grocery store or a school classroom or an office, bringing in more outdoor air is important to reduce the spread of the virus by aerosols. And then there's things we can do to improve filtration in buildings also. You can, you can go to better filters, what are called MERV 13, or better filters in buildings. Um, and I think I think also worrying about those that have that are customer facing workers, you know, grocery store clerks and waiters and waitresses are probably at the greatest risk because they're near people all of the time. And I think I think we have to think about being better at uh, testing and contact tracing, especially for for those types of individuals. There seems to be some controversy around masks, and you just said that they're important as a as a as a block for aerosols what, why the controversy about masks uh, I'm, I'm not sure why there is a controversy there's plenty <laughs> of scientific evidence now that um that shows the benefits of masks you know the homemade masks are good at protecting you from other people's large the large particles that come out of their mouths when they breathe or they cough and they happen to be infected and may not even know it 
So the mask will block those large particles from getting uh, directly into your mouth, through your nose. They, they do a little bit to prevent the tiny particles. Right? They're not as effective for tiny particles. But if people around you are wearing masks that happen to be infected, as I said, uh, when they breathe or they cough, the propulsion of the particles from their mouths are dampened. And so it, it, it helps to, um, it, it helps when, when there's close contact to dramatically reduce uh, the, the spread of the virus. You know, from mm -hmm. one person into another when there's close contact. And so there's been uh, there's been a number of publications recently that actually show this. So it's you know that I believe in science, and I think that the, the science shows that masks work. And you had mentioned that six feet isn't sufficient. Is there a magic number? There is no magic number. So it depends on the nature of the environment that you're in. Things tend to travel and disperse less when you're indoors than when you're outdoors. So outdoors, you get a little bit of benefit from the dispersion and wind blowing and those kinds of things. The atmosphere is much larger outdoors than indoors. Um, there have been, the number six feet comes from really antiquated studies that were done almost 100 years ago uh, when researchers didn't have the kinds of instruments that we have today. And it's just kind of a number that's stuck and it's repeated so much by health authorities that I think the public has sort of adopted it as, as a, uh, an underlying physical law like Newton's laws or something, but it really isn't. And there's been plenty of research that shows that in, in indoor environments, especially where the air is much stiller, um, that uh, for a cough, particles can travel, large particles even, can travel uh, on the order of 20 feet or more. And then the tiny particles don't don't you know really don't deposit extensively on surfaces they stay in the air as long as air is in a building and so mm. it's a cloud of these tiny particles that are one one hundredth the cross section of the human hair that tend to linger in the air and so in that case they just they can travel from downstairs to upstairs in your house or from one room to another room in your house mm. certainly across the room and so when we think about that you know in our own homes we think about that in grocery stores or retail um, outlets or stores, we think about that in restaurants. Is there a path for us in Oregon and beyond to start to gather in public places again in a safe way? Yeah, I think right now there's not in a dense way. So mm -hmm. we don't want to have large crowds, uh, especially inside of restaurants, inside of classrooms, inside of the workplace. Um, we want uh, sufficient social distancing. I think that's important. Um, when somebody's infected and they don't know it, they're asymptomatic, uh, just breathing. You know, you release thousands of particles uh, per minute. Speaking, you, you can release tens of thousands to 100,000 particles in a minute from your mouth. Coughing, several hundred thousand in one cough. And if you're close to somebody and they're infected and they don't know it, uh, and you're close to them, you're going to be inhaling a lot of tiny particles into your respiratory system. And we don't know yet for SARS-CoV-2 how many, how many viruses that are carried by these particles. The, vi the viruses are essentially embedded in these small, in these small tiny droplets. Mm -hmm. um, we don't know how many of those have to get into your respiratory system to cause infection, like we do with flu. In the case of flu, just one virus getting into your lungs can cause you to be infected. One virus in your lung or on the order of about a thousand in your nose can, can cause you to get infected. So we don't know what it is for SARS-CoV-2 yet, um, but you know, to be safe, we shouldn't, 
should want to not get any of these viruses into our respiratory system. That means social distancing. That means good ventilation. Uh, that means wearing masks. And I, I think, um, you know, I'm involved with a university. I talk to people in K through 12 school districts all the time. There's a lot of anxiety about universities going back to class in the fall and K through 12 schools going back in the fall. And um, I think it can be done, but it has to be done really, you know, in a really smart way. That means more outdoor air supply. That means people wearing masks, whether they like to or not. And I don't, I don't know what the controversy is there. Um, mm. And I do know that some people don't like to wear masks. Um, and, and that means social distancing. And I think that also in smaller spaces, there are some really good portable air cleaners that can be used that uh, effectively remove particles from the air that are just the size that happen to carry the, this coronavirus. Mm. And Dr. Corsi, we're going to be talking about air quality for months, probably years. Where would you send listeners for more resources and where they can learn more? Yeah, there are uh, there's a couple of great websites. So if you're interested in portable air cleaners, for example, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency at, um, at epa.gov has a site that's just for indoor air quality, and they have lots of great information about, uh, about selecting portable air cleaners. They have great information about radon, which is, of course, an issue in the Portland area, information about um, lead-based paints that become airborne. If you have children in your home, that's an issue in older parts of Portland, like where I live in East Portland. Um, so, the, so the EPA has a good website. The California Air Resources Board um, also has a website on indoor air quality that if you just go, if you just try it, I think it's www.carb.gov or something, or CA. Um, you have to look for that one a little bit more. It's not as easy to find the indoor air quality section, but it's chock full of really good information about indoor air quality and, and how to protect and to protect your family and also improve the indoor air quality in general in homes and schools, et cetera. So there are some good websites that the public has access to. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Dr. Corsi, thank you so much for joining us this morning and giving us resources. It's my pleasure, Emily. Thank you. Again, that's Dr. Richard Corsi, Dean of Portland State's Massey College of Engineering and Computer Science. Up next, we have an interview by Colin Jones with Brooke Jackson-Glidden and Alex Frayne from Eater on their article, The Portland Restaurant World's Reckoning Explained. Brooke and Alex share their reporting on discrimination, harassment, and pervasive toxic culture recently being shared about local restaurants on social media. Though these struggles are not new to restaurant culture, these historic times between COVID-19 and the global fight for racial justice are inspiring and forcing change. Here are Colin, Brooke, and Alex. Since July 1st, Portland's restaurant industry has been facing a reckoning over charges of discrimination, sexual harassment, and toxic management. To help us understand where it started, we're joined now by the editor of Eater Portland, Brooke Jackson-Glidden, and writer for Eater, Alex Frain. Their article, The Portland Restaurant World's Reckoning Explained, documents the accusations leveled at many of Portland's top restaurants. Brooke and Alex, thank you so much for joining us. How are you this morning? Doing great. I have my tea. I'm excited to chat. (laughs) Wonderful. Um, We were just talking about some of the joys, perhaps one of the few upsides of the pandemic is the ability to do things like this in your pajamas or with your tea and a little more cozy. (laughs) It's very convenient. 
definitely. Um, so let's dive right in. So you explained in the article that many of the recent accusations against Portland restaurants stem from the Instagram account of a particular restaurant owner, Chef Maya Lovelace. So can you just give us a sense for folks who haven't read your article, how did this all start? Sure. So on July 1st, Maya Lovelace, who owns the Southern Restaurant Yonder and Supper Club Bay in Northeast Portland, began sharing accounts of particular restaurant owners and managers in the Portland area. And she started, you know, talking about experiences that she had. Um, and from there, essentially posted an open call offering to, you know, provide her platform to share anonymous accounts. Uh, basically, she just cropped out people's names and shared direct screenshots of messages from restaurant workers um, around the area. Um, and, you know, when it, when it comes to sort of the impetus, um, she had just seen and shared a post about a chef whose bad behavior impacted a friend. And between this and um, a recent post from Nick Zukin of the Meryl mm-hmm. Mole, which had generally in his sort of closing announcement compared the difficulty of running a restaurant to the way George Floyd was murdered. She decided, you know, she wanted to destroy this whisper network among chefs. The truth is, you know, Portland's restaurant market is small. Everyone knows everyone. And these restaurant workers and chefs all know each other's business in many cases, but customers don't, right? Like these Mm -hmm. are conversations that are happening, you know, at, at bars, um, after work, but they're not really happening on a public scale um, out of fear of retribution in many cases. So this was sort of Lovelace's attempt to get those stories out in the open. Gotcha. And just to add to what Brooke was saying, I also think that there's just kind of a uh, general trend right now where people are needing to use their social media and their voice and their platform to speak to um, inequity that has been around for like a long time. I know that um, that my social media feed has changed significantly in the last few months, you know, even prior to uh, the killing of George Floyd. There was, you know, this pandemic, I feel, has really revealed a lot of the kind of brokenness in our culture and our society that uh, people were not necessarily aware of or were aware of but weren't speaking to. And now people are really needing to use their, like I said, needing to use their platform to speak to all of that. And this is a piece, I think, of this greater conversation that we're starting to have. Absolutely. Can you give us, um, so you mentioned Nick Zukin's Twitter thread. Can you give us examples of some of, like, one or two of the things that sort of came out from Lovelace's posts? Absolutely. Um, So there were a ton of restaurants mentioned in this. Um, We saw you know, posts about Olympia provisions, um, everything from, you know, a Mexican Christmas-themed party that involved Mm -hmm. sort of racist costumes. There were um, claims of tip or wage theft. There was uh, a claim that of a sexual assault um, and general sort of toxic environments in that restaurant um, and among that restaurant group. Um, you know, a lot of restaurants were named. Uh, Farm Spirit was named for um, a hostile and safe work environment. Um, you know, y- you saw everything from sexual harassment claims, claims of um, sexual assault, to just sort of, you know, offhanded comments that impacted people in terms of whatever, you know, um, identity that they have. You know, there was there were things that were hard for queer employees in kitchens. There was, it was, it was such an expansive amount of um, claims made about specific restaurants, you know, um, 
but it generally seemed to follow these trends of talking about the general toxicity of certain kitchens, you know, Mm -hmm. um, whether that's someone showing up to work drunk or, um, you know, somebody screaming in the face of an employee or, you know, excusing sexual harassment or um, even sexual assault by restaurant workers. And without sort of speaking necessarily to any of the specific claims, like based on your your experiences with the restaurant industry and your past writing, as a trend, does this seem plausible, this kind of toxic management and abuse? I would... Um, sorry, go ahead, Brooke. Go ahead. Oh, well, I was no, well, going to oh. say that, I mean, personally, <laughs> as, a, as somebody who worked in restaurants, I never worked in a kitchen where I wasn't sexually harassed in uh-huh. some way. Um, as a reporter... I would say that many of the restaurant workers that I talked to have experienced some sort of, of harassment, whether it's by customers or, or by coworkers or managers. Um, and, you know, in terms of just our day-to-day work, we get so many tips along these lines. Um, you know, it, it's sort of similar to Maya Lovelace. You know, she put, posts this open call, suddenly she's hit with hundreds. It's, you know, trying to tackle one particular restaurant is, I think, almost um, a misunderstanding of the problem. It's, it's pervasive. Mm-hmm. And did you have something to add to that, I, Alex? Well, I've always noted that, um, so I, I, I don't think that this sort of pervasive toxic culture is unique to the restaurant industry by any means, or the bar industry, but I think there is a certain amount of uh, flexibility within that industry that allows for this. Um, I remember years ago talking to a friend about the fact that like if you get fired enough times in a particular career generally your career is not going to go very far but in the restaurant industry that's not always the case i know people who have been fired multiple multiple times by different people for you know poor behavior and still manage to find a job somewhere else um you know because people always need servers and people always need cooks and chefs and so i think there's a certain allowance of that kind of bad behavior in that in that industry that is uh if not unique to the restaurant industry, at least exaggerated within it. Mm-hmm. And so, so what have the initial reactions been to sort of this series of revelations? Well, I think there's it been depends. A lot of gratitude mean. for um, one for mm. people who haven't been able to speak up to it and who are uh, who are able to. Um, there's obviously a backlash as well, but I think that people are relieved to see that there is some sort of. Uh, accountability may be starting to shape. And Brooke, you said it sort of depends. Is Has the reaction I been different from the chefs or from the owners? I, I would say that, you know, in terms of the way that chefs and these business owners that were included in these posts, how they've responded, you know, we, we see a, a very wide range of mm-hmm. um, general responses. Um, you know, there are you know, chefs like Aaron Adams uh, from Spirit, who essentially fully removed the brigade model or the general hierarchy of his of his kitchen and created an anonymous tip system so mm. employees could file claim complaints against him and his behavior um, without fear of retaliation. Um, there are people like the Sturks who left submarine hospitality in response to, you know, the general mm. uh, climate of, of the restaurant group itself and, and responses to it. Um, there and then there are people, there are restaurant owners who refer to sort of this way, this this method of, of sharing as naive or um, 
ineffective or dangerous. Hmm. Um, you know, Maya Lovelace, she has received plenty of people who have ref- compared her to a mass shooter, um, hmm. who've called her evil um, because of this behavior. So there are a lot of restaurant workers who are very grateful for this particular method that feel like their their stories have been told for the first time or that they're able to say things out loud for the first time. But I would say that it's it's a, a complex picture. There are there are people who are very concerned about this specific way of sharing these stories, um, and there are people who feel very grateful be specifically for this particular model, this way of being able to share stories. It's mm-hmm. it's um it's definitely been uh, a little bit of uh, whiplash on on Maya's part, I would say. And beyond just the method of sharing these stories, I I do think that there is a uh, vocal group of people who feel that that should never happen no matter what you know this sort of mm-hmm. um, we've seen it in the comments on our social media post for our article and um, and on, on the article itself this idea that any sort of uh, um, accountability or, or, or you know we use the term reckoning in our headline any sort of reckoning is a symptom of counterculture supposed mm-hmm. or excuse me cancel culture mm-hmm. supposedly and, and some misguided brigade and that people should be allowed to you know make mistakes as the um the comments that that i've seen so some people just kind of out of hand reject the idea that we should even be having this conversation hmm. and yet we are and so yeah, we are. um you know you both talk about this being not a new issue in the industry um is there anything that's different about this particular moment that makes you think that this will lead to a sea change or a really kind of big change in the industry? Well, I will say that we've already seen some extraordinarily dramatic restructuring of the restaurant industry in Portland. I mean, you know, just a, what, like a week prior to um, to Maya Lovelace posting to her Instagram account, uh, we had the story with John Gorham of Toro Bravo Inc., which was this kind mm-hmm. of revelatory story about his behavior and that ended up you know pretty radically restructuring one of the largest restaurant groups in the city um so i i I think at least we're already starting to see these little you know bits of systemic change happening i i completely agree and i think that in terms of just the sort of general climate of restaurant work right now the stakes are so much higher you know um when it is scary or dangerous or even life-threatening to go to work in any case the you know daily microaggressions or just even major um, feelings of toxicity in a kitchen seem so much more unbearable you know if you're going to a business or going to a job that you love um, it it might be a little bit easier to reconcile the fact that you're taking a risk Mm -hmm. as as a, a a worker, an essential worker during a pandemic like this. But if you're simultaneously thinking about the behavior of your manager and, and you know, feeling the, the emotional weight of working in a space that is so toxic, you might be more inclined to speak up because the premise of going back to work sounds dangerous and scary on so many levels. You know what I mean? So I think that actually it's, it's similar to what Alex said earlier, which is that this is a specific moment where that I think is is um, open to protest people because pe- 
the stakes are so much higher. People feel like they don't necessarily have something to lose in a certain way because there is so much to be done. And, you know, the alternative is, in certain cases, life-threatening. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think, uh, just kind of adding on to that, like what Brooke was saying about this, you know, um, uh, the, the uh, importance of everything happening right now, and to answer your question, I think there has to be a sea change. Like, mm-hmm. I think people are at the point that they are refusing to accept anything else, um, and not just in the restaurant industry, but, you know, more generally. I mean, we're on day, what, 40-something of protests mm-hmm. in about every single major city around the country and while that is you know specifically about this sort of racial inequity in the country that's uh, uh intimately related to inequity and mistreatment in the industry in, in the restaurant industry it's all a part of this kind of greater conversation i think that we're having and so um yeah i think there has to be yeah change i, I think people are really really going to insist that that be the case gotcha. absolutely awesome. i think customers have an incredible impact on restaurants um and that includes good behavior and bad behavior Mm -hmm. so if you know um i would say there have been several stories written about just harassment by customers um at restaurants and yeah i think that same sort of bystander training that that perspective to speak out or intervene when something is going wrong i think that's crucial for everyone who interacts with restaurants both workers and employees and guests exactly that's fantastic. I really appreciate those calls to action and those steps that people can take, right? Expand your social media world. Watch how owners and managers respond to criticism. Think consciously and apply your pressure as a consumer. Go to restaurants with good health and safety practices. And I appreciate that last point especially. You know, Be a kind customer yourself and intervene when other customers are being harmful or harassing. This has been so insightful. Thank you, Brooke. Thank you, Alex. We really appreciate your time and your work on this story. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good morning. Thanks to Dr. Corsi, to Colin, to Brooke, and Alex for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Please, today is a good day to subscribe and give a five-star review, and thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.